Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. Uh, It's so good to be with you this morning, and thank you for tuning in. I don't say that enough to our online campus, but I'm so grateful that you're with us every week. We're doing it a little bit differently today because we're doing worship out on the parking lot and we can't stream live. So I wanted to be sure that you got the exact same message that um, that our people will get today as as we worship together. And just wanted to say that how much we appreciate you. If there's any need that you have, please send us a message and we'll respond to that need. So that it's not just you where you are feeling isolated and, and alone. But we want to engage with you in any way that we can. It's one of my favorite stories. Young preacher was interviewing for uh, a job with a pulpit committee, and the committee chairman asked, "Son, do you know your Bible pretty good?" "Yes, sir. I know it from Genesis to Revelation." The boy said. The chairman asked, "Which part do you know the best?" He responded, "I know the New Testament the best." "Well, which part of the New Testament do you know best?" asked the chairman. The young minister said, several parts. The chairman said, well, why don't you tell us the story of the prodigal son? The young man said, fine. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who went down to Jericho by night and he fell upon stony ground and the thorns choked him half to death. The next morning, Solomon and his wife, Gomorrah, came by and carried him down to the ark of Moses to take care of him. But as he was going through the eastern gate into the ark, he caught his hair in a limb and he hung there for 40 days and 40 nights. And he afterwards did hunger and the ravens came and fed him. The next day, the three wise men came and carried him down to the boat dock and he caught a ship to Nineveh. And when he got there, he found Delilah sitting on the wall and he said, chunk her down, boys, chunk her down. And they said, how many times shall we chunk her down? Till seven times? And he said, nay, but 70 times seven. And they chunked her down 490 times, and she burst asunder in the midst, and they picked up 12 baskets of the fragments. And in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? (laughs) There was stunned silence on the pulpit search committee. And then finally, the chairman spoke up and said, Well, he may be young, but he sure does know his Bible. (laughs) That's one of my all-time favorites. He may be young, but he sure does know his Bible. You know, sadly, too often, that's true. We own a Bible, but the Bible doesn't own us. We've got a Bible sitting, you know, beside us on our nightstand, but that same Word of God is not inside of us. And because of that... One of the struggles we have as Christians is we don't think biblically. And so we think like the world thinks and we respond like the world responds. And when we're in a pressured situation, we tend to just go along with what everyone else is doing rather than understanding who God is, what his plan is, and what he wants to do with our lives. And it all comes back to understanding uh, the power of the word of God. And I won't talk about that this morning because that's where freedom is. And that's where, that's where we are liberated. And that's really the point of John chapter 8. So let's get our Bibles out, turn on our devices, however you want to follow along. John chapter 8. 
Now remember this thing all started when Jesus, back in John 5, healed a man beside the pool of Bethesda. And, and uh, you know, you think everybody would be super excited about that, but the fact of the matter is the Jewish leaders were angry because he did it on the Sabbath. And consequently, we have this ongoing battle between Jesus and the religious leaders as a result of that that seems to be escalating. Jesus had gone back to Galilee. Now he's back in Jerusalem with the Feast of Booths. And man, they've been on him. If you remember last time we were together, we talked about the fact that they had brought this woman caught in adultery in the very act. And they used her as a tool to try to trap Jesus into denying the law. But, you know, they were like amateurs in a... They were, they were defenseless. Um, it's like a, you know, some street kid trying to take on a prize fighter. Jesus just bent down in the sand, wrote a few things, stood up and said, let the one that's without, you cast, without sin cast the first stone. And you know, uh, next thing you know, you hear the sound of stones dropping and men walking away. And Jesus says to the woman, where are they, the ones who condemned you? And she said, they're gone. And he said, then I don't condemn you either. Go your way and sin no more. It's a beautiful illustration. But then Jesus, right after that, makes this statement. Uh, John 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. What a profoundly beautiful idea of who he is and what he's about. And and we realize that Jesus is not saying, I bring light. He's saying, I am light. And when you think about light and what it does, the first and obvious thing it does is it drives out darkness. No matter how great the darkness or how small the light, uh, whenever light is brought into the darkness, the darkness is dispelled. And, And by virtue of that, it gives us a clearer image of who we are, and it gives us a clearer image of who God is. And and through that, we can begin to realize the things that God wants to clean up, change, work on, uh, and and move in our lives, right? But there's another thing, and that is when when we see light, we're drawn to it, you know, like a moth to a flame. That's what was happening here. Once again, after Jesus says that, the Jews go after him in the same tired way. We know our Father. You don't know your Father. Jesus said, I know the Father And if you'd know the Father, you would know me because the Father and I are the same thing, you know. And they're like, well, you were from Galilee, and they get into all of his pedigree and all that stuff, you know. And so Jesus just keeps deflecting the blows like a a master boxer in a street brawl with some punk. And the religious leaders were so outgunned and outclassed that they just had no answer, you know, for this wise, gentle teacher who was taking the same text that they had And he was bringing light into those words in ways that the people marveled at. And then you add to that these profound manifestations of the power of God through the miraculous signs that he did. And and they just don't know what to do with it. And verse 40 of John 8, uh, verse 30 of John 8 says, "As As he spoke these things, many came to believe him. And so Jesus, by virtue of these conflicts, just keeps gaining in popularity. And so more and more people are coming, more and more are believing in Him. But He really wants to push them to the next level. And so He says in verse 31, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, okay, these Jews who had believed Him, this is who He's talking to. 
Um, you see, they had believed that he was special. Some even believed he might be the prophet. Some might have even thought this may be the Messiah. But there's a difference between believing and believing. It's hard to describe, you know. It's like I can believe in something without really believing in it until I really commit myself to it. And so Jesus is pressing them to commit themselves more fully to him. Because simple intellectual agreement is not enough. Belief means to commit your life to it. And so he said to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And watch what happens. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So for me, there are three key words in this text that I wanted to lift out and emphasize. The first is that word abide, and then the second is truth, and then finally freedom, right? So let's start with abide. He said, if you abide in my word. Now, some translate this, New American Standard 95 translates this, continue. If you continue in my word, and I get that. I, I think NIV treats it the same way. But, you know, it really doesn't capture the meaning, especially in terms of the context. The word used there is meno in the Greek, and it means literally to abide. It, it has the figurative sense of pitching your tent or living in a tabernacle. It means to tabernacle with them. And you think about this, uh, if you've been with us in this study, and you know the background and context that Jesus has been in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, which is a feast where the people spend seven days in homemade structures out in the backyard or wherever, uh, almost like tents or tabernacles. Some people call it the Feast of Tabernacles. And then suddenly you realize they were abiding in those crude shelters like tents for seven days. So abide not only perfectly captures the point, but it resonates with the people as to where they are right now. It means to dwell, to live, to remain. You know, the word for perseverance is hupomena, uh, and meno meaning to abide, and hupa meaning under. So hupomeno, to abide under. And so this word means to, to dwell there, to stay there. Not, he's not talking about some superficial glancing across like a stone across a pond. He's talking about allowing the word to saturate you, to, to indwell you, to fill you. And I thought about this, you know, we're all abiding in something, right? And you really know what you abide in because that's what your mind goes to when it becomes idle. What's the first thing you think about? Well, that's what you're abiding in. Some people abide in social media, and some abide in sports or a, a team. Some abide in, you know, sportsman things like hunting or fishing, or some love to cook, you name it. I mean, and, you know, it really comes back to that first idea that you think about when your mind goes idle. And sometimes we abide in things we shouldn't abide in. Sometimes the things we abide in aren't necessarily immoral, but sometimes, you know, they can be. And we allow lust or greed or envy or anger or something like that to constantly percolate up into our spirit and our mind, and we become people who abide in that. Here's something you need to know. Whatever we abide in abides in us. Did you hear that? Whatever I abide in abides in me. And Jesus said, abide in my word. And, he, and, when, and in saying that, he's not only talking about the words that he's speaking right then in that moment, 
But he's talking about the the whole of the scripture that God has revealed to us. You know, if Jesus was co-creator, then he's clearly co-author. In fact, if you remember, John opened this thing by saying, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And now he's saying, abide in my Word, the Word of God himself gives us the Word of God. And we're to live in that, we're to dwell in that. And when you do that, two powerful things are going to flow out of that. First, you're going to know the truth. And second, the truth is going to make you free. So let's talk about truth. It says you'll know the truth. And this implies two things about truth that I think we need to say again. First of all, truth exists. Man, it's almost crazy to have to say that today because, you know, we always took that for granted, but postmodernism doesn't really believe in truth. Over the past couple of hundred years, there's been this massive shift away from the idea of believing in absolute truth. I mean, in the past, you saw truth as something that was permanent, static, immutable, absolute, right? But that's not true today. Today, truth is dynamic and changing. What was true yesterday may not be true tomorrow, and what's true for you may not be true for me. That's the way people think today. It's as if truth had somehow transformed from something like a gem or a diamond into Play-Doh, and it's something that we can mold or manipulate with our own whims. And the cause of the change in truth are really multifaceted, and you know, uh, it's a part of the uh, ongoing evolution of buying into reason over revelation and uh, thinking too highly of the thoughts of man coming out of the, the whole philosophical systems that really began to take shape in the 1800s, working through the 1900s and through the age of enlightenment. Uh, but you can really lay a lot of this at the feet of a German philosopher named Hegel. And I don't want to bore you with Hegel, but one of the things that Hegel did was he came up with a completely different way of thinking. Prior to Hegel, the thinking was basically based on the way Aristotle thought, which is, I look at this and a thing is either true or false, A or B, you know, and either or. But Hegel began to want to see things in, in two ways all at once, and he, and he struggled with a way to define that. He finally came up with the word dialectic. And in his thinking, his focus was on the totality he was a historian. He liked to see how the history of things sort of fit together. And so he wanted to be able to see all things together as a whole in totality, what he would call the end result, you know. But the problem is we live in these moments. And so all I can see is what's going on in my moment. And Hegel began to realize that what happens in the moment isn't always the same as what's going to happen at the end. I, I, the best way I could think to, to describe this would be like a Mickey Mouse cartoon. You know, you've got Mickey Mouse over here and say he wants to go to Minnie's house or whatever action that the cartoonists want to convey. So he's going to move from point A to point B. Well, when you're, when you're drawing cartoons, you draw 24 cartoons per second. They really draw 12 and they, they, they double them, so it's 24 per second. And so at any moment, if you looked at any one of those cells, you would see Mickey in a different position. And that position becomes your present reality, whatever cell you're looking at in that moment. And that present reality becomes your truth. But it's not the way truth is going to look at the end when the whole story is in total. Do you, are, you, are, you, are you feeling what I'm saying? And so that way of thinking began to change the way people looked at a thing, right? Um, 
And it introduced the concept of dynamic reality, that nothing is static, nothing stays the same. And so Marx took Hegel's dialectic idea and applied it to economics and came up with communism. Darwin took Hegel's dialectic idea and applied it to biology and came up with the theory of evolution. Um, existentialists like Jean-Paul Sartre uh, applied it to uh, a personal, personal experience. But when you apply Hegel's dialectic to truth, truth becomes malleable. In fact, it has become so malleable that academic institutions no longer even talk about truth because there is no, they're, they're like when Jesus is standing before Pilate and, he, and Pilate looks at him and says, what is truth? They don't even know anymore because they can't even come up with it. And this rewrite of truth has reached such a crescendo in the third decade of the 21st century that right now, that now right is wrong, up is down, and biological men are breaking records in women's sports. And the fallout of this new truth has been the wholesale cancellation of the past because those guys were in a wrong truth and they had the wrong truth at the wrong time. And so now... Even historical icons like Lincoln and Washington are under fire. And of course, we know that the problem is that men fail to distinguish between knowledge and truth. Look, knowledge changes. There's no question about that. What we know today is far more vast than what was known 100 years ago. That's knowledge. But truth hasn't changed. Two plus two is still four. When a musician uh, you know, takes a tuning fork and, and it has an A on it and he strikes it and he holds it up, the sound you're going to hear is an A. It was an A a thousand years ago. It's an A today and it'll be an A a thousand years from now. That's truth. And there are certain truths about human beings and how we interrelate and how we... How we uh, respond to God, how we respond to each other. There are certain moral truths that have not changed. And when we violate those things, the consequences become pretty obvious. And this is really the key distinction between biblical worldview and a postmodern worldview. We gain knowledge, but we discover truth. That's the difference. And you know, you see this throughout the Bible. And Jesus is saying to them, abide in my word and you'll discover truth. In other words, truth still exists. And secondly, truth is discoverable. You can find truth. You just have to look in the right place. And all of this goes to the heart of Jesus. His words are truth. He is truth. The truth is in His Word. So abide in His Word and you discover truth. So why don't we abide in His Word? Right? Because here's the thing. When you discover truth, that truth sets you free. That's that last thing. The truth will set you free. These maybe maybe some of the most beautiful words ever spoken. And you know, you see it everywhere. Did you know that this statement is, is on a cornerstone somewhere in the building at the CIA? It was on the cornerstones of major academic institutions. John Hopkins had on its seal, the truth will make you free in Latin. Uh, Harvard used to have this as a part of their seal uh, about truth. People love this idea, but their concept of truth was more, it was more related to knowledge than it was to truth. Because the only really place to find truth is in His Word. 
And we're so chained to so many things, right? Abuse from the past, disappointments, personal failures, guilt, shame, anger, anxiety, the list goes on and on, unforgiveness. And Jesus can set us free from all that. Jesus can set you free from all that. But you have to accept it. He said, if, he said to those people who believed in him, if you abide in me and my word, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And watch how the Jews reacted. Verse 33, they answered him, we're Abraham's descendants. We're privileged by virtue of our birthright and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become? I almost laugh at that because the nation of Israel, if you know their backstory and their history, they were almost always enslaved. In fact, at the moment they said this, they were a puppet regime of the empire of Rome. Jesus answered them, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And you know, I have to come to terms with that. You have to come to terms with that. I'm a slave of sin. And there's nothing I can do about it. And so I have to abide in his word, discover the truth that leads to salvation and light, that leads to forgiveness and healing, and then I'm set free. The slave, he says in verse 35, does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. In other words, as long as you're a slave of sin, you're a temporary part of that house. But when you admit your sin and you confess it to the Lord, you, you go from being a slave into becoming a child of God. And he says, the child does remain forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed, truly free. Do you want to be truly free? Then you have to give your life to Christ and abide in his word. Learn that truth. In every phase of your life, this is the process of sanctification. This is what we call discipleship. As I abide in His Word, His Word is revealed to me. I know the truth. And as I apply that truth to my life, I find greater freedom. So three words, abide, truth, and free. One last thing. Once you get free, stay free. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore... Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. When the boys were little, we had this hamster named Pauls, and Pauls was an escape artist. He lived in a little uh, habit trail, plastic environment upstairs in the house, in the boys' room. And it had a little flap door on top, and, and Pauls, he had a little wheel, he... Uh, you know, I had a little eating dish, a little water bottle, some little stairs. But he had somehow learned to, to either jump or climb or climb and jump and get his little old fingers into the crack where the door was. And then just through the force of his will and just personal power, he would shove his little nose up until he could pop that door open. And then he was free. And Paul's would run all over the house, which is ironic because we had two large cats at the time. <laughs> Paws didn't seem to care, and for whatever reason, the cats wouldn't eat him. And then after a while, we're like, where'd Paws go? And we can't find Paws. And then one of the cats would always kind of rat him out. You know, he would kind of sniff under the refrigerator, and we'd look under there, and there was Paws, and, and we'd bring him back. So every night, 
while we were asleep, Paul's worked on his escape plan like Andy Dufresne in uh, Shawshank Redemption, right? He'd jump up, cling to that lid, pop it off. Finally, we said, enough of this. So we put a heavy toy on top of the lid. We came in one day, and Paul's had chewed a hole in the corner of the plastic thing, just working it, you know, like Shawshank, until he could crawl through the hole and get to a sock drawer and hide in the sock drawer. I don't know what his overall plan was, but, man, he just wanted to be free. He didn't care about where he was. He didn't care about cats. He didn't care about anything. He was longing for freedom, right? And so sometimes we'd have to find him and then we'd have to buy a new thing for him because Paul's had ruined the old one. And, and you know what? One thing, every time we'd find him, the cats would rat him out again. We'd put him back in the habit trail. And, but the one thing Paul's would never do, never, he never did this a single time. He never returned to that cage on his own. And sometimes I wonder if... Uh, if that hamster's not smarter than me. Because all too often I return to the very thing that Christ set me free from. If you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So you got to know him, learn of him, live for him. Get free live free, stay free, and then help someone else get free. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the freedom that comes through Jesus as we abide in your word. And Father, I pray for those that have been with us this morning, that they would abide in your word. And by process of that, no longer be subject to the winds of modernity and people's ideas that blow through, but they would be rooted in the truth of your word. And by virtue of that, as it's applied to their lives, they would live free. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.